Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 16th of October, John Owen taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester's School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where John took us through the book of Hebrews. John currently serves on the staff at Regents Theological College in Worcestershire. Let's take a listen to the session. Good morning to everyone. Um, Just to say before I go forward that um, I have given uh, these handouts to you, but I've got full handouts um, on Hebrews and on prayer that I will um, give you after uh, the sessions. So you can write notes, but uh, just to know that you've got uh, full handouts that are coming your way. Um, I remember some years ago, I worked with a a Ugandan pastor, um, uh, especially in the area of prayer, and he used to come and minister at our church. And when he used to come across difficult or weighty parts of scripture he used to say help me jesus and i must say i feel a little bit like that this morning um in trying to present hebrews over zoom i have for the last year i work in a theological college and i've been analyzing student feedback and some of the pro the the complaints i've had are on the limitations of zoom and here i am this morning trying to teach uh, through the medium of zoom Hebrews is rich, very rich in its theology. It's very weighty, uh, but it's so relevant um, for today. You find that sometimes churches don't uh, kind of touch Hebrews because it seems just so much like a strange book. But um, I'm glad that we we are doing it this morning. So what I'm going to do now for the next few minutes, just give you a few um, pointers on the background of the letter of Hebrews. And uh, as I do, uh, I'll tell Andy uh, very soon to put a picture on that will help us to understand it. But before I do that, in order to use this illustration, this picture, I just want to give you some background on something that's not related uh, at all to Hebrews, but it's a, um, to do with athletics. 1954 was a breakthrough year in sport when what was said to be impossible by scientists and medics became fact. A man ran a mile in under five, four minutes. Name, you probably know him, Roger Bannister. He became the pioneer for sport at this distance and it spurred his rival, Australian John Landy, to run under four minutes in the same year. So the stage was set in the August 1954 at the Empire Games, which has now become known as the Commonwealth Games. It was the first, so it's the first televised sporting event in Vancouver was what was dubbed the Miracle Mile, when these two runners would run against each other. And if you want to, Andy, you can put the the picture on now. We got it? Oh yeah, it's coming, coming up. So this is the 1954 picture and we'll, we'll get to the point because this point is called the moment. So at the gun, Landy ran off in front like a hare. That was his style. 
And it was still there until the final bend, which is what this picture now shows, when for some inexplicable reason, he looked over his left shoulder on the inside track. So you can see the guy in the dark with the, the dark hair, that's Landy. And at that instance, Bannister, the more fair-haired guy, the one on the outside, came up on his right side and overtook him and steamed ahead to the finishing line in a new world record. Now that instance of Landy looking back and Bannister overtaking with his eyes on the prize is dubbed the moment. And it summarizes and it gives a great overview of what this letter of Hebrews or sermon is about. Landy on the inside track looking back representing the Hebrew church situation. The actions of Bannister in the final stretch, the reality of what Christ has done for us. Our pioneer who has gone ahead of us and become the trailblazer and won the victory over sin and death, who is now exalted in heaven as the true king of the world. You try and keep that picture in mind as we go through Hebrews, and it will try, it will help you to see the big picture, the overall picture of this book. Andy, do you want to take that away now? Thank you. So the book of Hebrews is a letter in the form of an absolutely magnificent sermon. It's a real spectacle. It's written by a brilliant person with a pastor's heart. We don't know who the second generation Christian was. Um, it says he's a second generation Christian in chapter two, verse three. It could be Apollos, it could be Barnabas, it could be Clement, it could be Priscilla. They are among the possibilities cited. Probably the money if you're a betting person is on Apollos, but we just don't know. But it was written around AD 40 to 70, some scholars say maybe later, but only a few, mostly say it wasn't written beyond AD 70. We know the writer moves in Paul's circles because there's reference to Timothy. And I'm gonna call all the, uh, this period, the writer, the pastor. That's the term framed by Cockrell, who's, who's written a magnificent commentary on Hebrews. And we call him the pastor because he writes earnestly to the Hebrews with a pastor's heart. He has a brilliant mind, as I said. He uses eloquent Greek. He uses rhetorical structures of writing and has a wonderful grasp of the Hebrew scriptures. And it's rather amusing at the end of, uh, in chapter 13, he says, I have written to you only a short letter. Well, I must say, if this is a short letter, then I would not like to see one of his long ones. The recipients of the letter, simply they, we don't know much about them, but they are a community of Jewish Christians, most probably located as expats in Italy, most probably in Rome. Just the background of the letter, I think it's always important that 
we understand the context when coming to scripture as well as seeing the big picture. So I always said the pastor has a deep concern for the spiritual welfare. But what we think also is a very small house fellowship. It seems very insignificant. It's made up, as I said, of Jewish Christians who've been converted to Christianity, not recently, but a number of years ago. They are experienced campaigners. And in Community and Witness, when they first came to Christ, they were extremely enthusiastic. If you like, they run out in front using this, this athletic analogy with all the energy that new birth brings. And the persecution they experienced at first from an unbelieving world was deemed to be by them a badge of honor. Nothing distracted them. His empowering presence helped them. We see that in chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 34. It says, at the beginning, you stood your ground when publicly exposed to insult and persecution. You are willing to support those in prison for their faith. You joyfully accepted confiscation of your property. For some, conversion meant being disowned by the family. It meant being mocked by society. But it did not matter to them at all. They found Christ, and they expressed it in their work and their love for the Lord. But now some years later, when the sermon was written, the group are not so sure anymore. They'd started to look over the shoulder and they're in real danger of losing the plot. Stumbling that could, the writer says, or the pastor, lead to apostasy if not checked. And we know from the letter that no one in the group had died for their faith so far. But in chapter 12, verse 4, it says that bloodshed could be around the corner for them. And at the, writing, the time of writing, Roman society was not favorable to Christians at all. The Roman Tacitus called the Christian movement a deadly disease and accused Christians of hatred of the human race. Pliny described it as a wretched infection. Felix a Christian apologist records the complaint of you do not go to our shows, you do not take part in our processions, you are not present at our public banquets, and you shrink in horror from our sacred games. And there was something that was important in that society, which we should know when looking at the background of Hebrews, that receiving honor and avoiding shame was so important in that world Society was ruled by important people who could make or break you in terms of bestowing public honor on you or shaming you. And therefore, the powerful people could make life very difficult. And as individuals, we get the impression in this book that they had no one supporting them externally. They were marginalized people. And what the pastor says through this letter is steal yourself. Your supreme supporter is Jesus. He walked in obedience. He was shamed. He suffered, but was obedient to death. And therefore, don't succumb to the pressures or attractions of a watching world. Rather, follow Christ's example. 
because shame for the name of Christ suffered at the hands of an unbelieving world is great honor before God. It's, it's having God's favor that really matters. So there's external pressure in that way. But secondly, there's a healthy un looking over their shoulder to make more of their Jewish heritage prior to their conversion. And because of this, because of their looking at their Jewish heritage and saying, is that still applicable? There's indifference creeping into this small church. They're not so sure about things and it's affecting their meeting together. Chapter 10, verse 25. Doubts, maybe cynicism is arising. They're asking the question, is Christ really so unique? And where is he now in all this suffering we're experiencing? Should we start then to refocus on the Mosaic law and the temple system? Maybe we've overlooked the importance of angels. After all, they mediated the law given by Moses, so they must be important. And maybe going back to the law, it gives us a safety net and protection in society. Because it's important to know that Judaism at one point became a protected religion in the Roman Empire. But in response, the pastor redirects them in no uncertain terms to fix their attention on Christ the author and perfecter of their faith. He's run the race as a human being. He's conquered sin and death on our behalf by self-sacrifice, and he's won the final victory. The writer, just like the Apostle Paul, is utterly passionate about Jesus. A Jesus who is way out in front, like that picture showed, who is the trailblazer. And he's saying to them through this letter in the form of a sermon, look at him who has opened up the way into the presence of God and the new world order. Your Judaism never did that for you. He, has, he alone has conquered the effect of sin and death once and for all. Judaism couldn't do that. He is the pioneer of our faith. And the pastor shows them that the Lord's place in the lives, in their lives, should be utterly central. We're given a fascinating, compelling portrait of Jesus in Hebrews. He's given the number one spot. He outdazzles everyone, everything, nothing be it status in society, lack of it, angels, tradition, mosaic law, temple structure, or anything else should take his place in the church. He's now Messiah, King, the true Lord of the world, an eternal high priest. And we're going to look at that now in um, thing one, which I've tried to produce if Andy wants to put up for us on the screen. <clears throat> the next slide, just for a minute or two. I've just uh, put up a, um, an exploration of the four key themes that we're going to look at um, from the uh, book of Hebrews. And um, I've not tried to kind of do an exegesis of Hebrews because 
The first theme, it will um, look at chapter one, that's what we'll look at, but then to look at other themes that are spread throughout um, the, the chapters of Hebrews. So if we get time, these are going to be four areas that we are going to look at. So if you go toward two, straight to, we can take that off Andy and we can go to theme one on the handouts that I've given. We just want to look at this together. Just to try and introduce this, I'm, I'm at the place now um, where I'm ready to retire. I, I look that age, don't I? And um, I have to give six months notice to my uh, employers. And um, I think I've got five months left now. I gave them my notice about a month ago. So this week I was down. I, I, I work about 120 miles away down at the college. and. Um, I had an opportunity of um, a few committee meetings that I'm involved in, and one is called an academic board that looks at all our kind of policy and quality assurance to do with higher education. And I put a couple of agenda items down on there, and um, it was my swan song, if you like, uh, though I'm some five months away. I was going to um, declare to them what they needed to take into account going forward after my departure concerning quality assurance. So when it came to the gender item, I set my stall out and I really went for it in terms of um, making sure that they are aware of some of the challenges and some of the difficulties that were ahead of them. And they looked stunned. And most of them, not all, but most of them are in the mid to early 40s, um, younger than I am. And after I came out of the meeting and I sat in my office and I thought, oh, John, John, have you overdone it? Have you overdone it in terms of scaring them to death about what is beyond them when I leave in terms of the areas that they need to pick up? I compare that with coming home um, the day after. And uh, my wife said to me, John, do you know what you've forgotten? I said, what? She said, you've forgotten that it's our wedding anniversary. I thought, oh, no, I had. I've forgotten it. And she said, it doesn't matter. I also forgot it. But you know, my wife, she loves celebrations. We've got this evening, my daughter's 24th, and she's booked a restaurant, and she's invited the kids and the partners, and we will have a great celebration this evening. And those, you know, two things, just looking at them, my wife's want of celebration and getting everyone together, and the way this week that I felt I'd failed in terms of putting, laying on heavy to my, uh, to, to my colleagues what they should do, I thought was a great way to introduce theme one. Because, you know, Hebrews is a hard book. And he does the, the pastor, he does lay it on thick. But actually what he does here is like a celebration. He doesn't go for laying it on thick. He has no, don't do this, don't do that. But chapter one is like a brilliant firework display going off. That's meant to capture the attention of this house church. Because what he does is he takes us to the heavenly heights. They want to show us breathtaking images in, of Jesus. It's 
party time. No commands, as I say, do this, stop that. Just wonderful truth concerning the significance and majesty of Jesus in what he's done and where he is now. And like the Hebrews, we, the contemporary church, we need to understand, we need to appreciate the picture of his present status and position. Significantly here in chapter one, we're presented with insights into Old Testament passages, including the royal Psalms that would be sung at coronations and weddings of the Davidic kings. But the writer shows us in using these that they really signpost, they really glorify the Son of God. And they show us prophetically that Jesus alone is the one who truly fulfills Old Testament promises. So point one on your sheet. Biblical history is climaxed in Jesus. It says there in verse one, former things, time, sorry, God spoke through the prophets and the law, but he's now spoken through the son. It isn't so much that Jesus brought a message from the father. He is the message from the father. The whole sweep of biblical history is climaxed in Jesus through redemption, he split the ages in two. Jewish eschatology focuses on a time at the end of the age where justice will be done, where wrongs will be put right. And Jesus has brought this forward, this schedule, this end time schedule, and he's inaugurated the last days through the cross and his resurrection. And just in this verse here, it says that, you know, the son is described as the heir. He's the rightful inheritor of all things. He upholds and sustains all things by his word. He was there at the creation and he's responsible for the creation of all things. Further point two, he goes further. In verse three, he says that he's the exact representation, Jesus, of God the Father. Just like a first century coin would be stamped with the emperor's portrait, which would give the exact perfect imprint of him. So the exact perfect imprint of the father's nature and glory has been precisely reproduced in the soft metal of the son's nature. Jesus is the precise expression of God's own being. God has sent sketches of himself through the prophets. But now in the Son, he has given us an exact portrait of God. And actually, just to pull aside and look at a bit of application, we should be challenged here at the deepest level. Because just as Jesus has been stamped with God's image, as believers, we bear the image of Christ. We have become image bearers. We carry his stamp. Christ in us, the, by the power of the Spirit, is the reality. And what we won't go into it in chapter 2 of Hebrews, through using Isaiah's children's names as signs and, signs and symbols, they have meaning in Isaiah's ministry. He underlines that the church is countercultural, that we are holy ones. We are, if you like, prophetic signs and symbols in the world. We are God's holy ones representing him. But back to Jesus. He further says he's cleaned up the mess of sin. 
the redemption work he set out to do is over. It's been completed. And he uses the, the term son, and it begins to amplify in what the son means. And it, it, it's what the son has been through all eternity as the son comes to fruition and full expression in his exaltation. And it talks in terms of Christ being seated. That What that means is that through redemption, he's become the true king of the world. And he's now exercising sovereign rule. That's the present view in, of Jesus in Hebrews. He's our man in heaven, exalted, true king of the world. This is of tremendous relevance for the Hebrew church and also the contemporary church as well. Moreover, in verse 4, they may think that angels are important. So there's evidence that there's some angel worship probably going on in the church or exaltation of angels. But actually said the writer says, no, look, they are dispatched angels to worship him. And, you know, he puts in perspective what they are, that they are ministering servants. They may be asking, you know, is Jesus truly God? Where is he? And maybe the angels, they, they mediated, didn't they, the first covenant through Moses. Maybe they're important. And now, hear what he does in chapter one. He, he says quite a bit about angels, but he's putting them in the, the right perspective. They're just servants who worship the Son. The focus is on the Son. He's saying to this house church through those few verses at the beginning, Christ is the central piece of the jigsaw. He is the one who holds everything together. Without him, everything is incomplete and will not work. There's no progress beyond him. In and through him, everything makes sense and has come to its proper conclusion. Then the next point is point three is very important because what we see throughout Hebrews is the use of the Hebrew scriptures to back up his claims regarding Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And here what he uses are the Psalms in chapter one. And he says, look, the Psalms prophetically signpost to Christ. That these Old Testament scriptures anticipated, declared, and pointed forward to God's unique son. And he starts in verse 5, and he uses Psalm 2, verse 7. And this is a coronation psalm, and it mirrors 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. The psalm says, you are my son, and today I have become your father. This was a psalm sung when the Old Testament king came to the throne. But the writer says it points ultimately to the Messiah, who is the ultimate son of David. In other words, it's saying there is but one king, and it's God's own special son. And from eternity, he's always been the son. 
But here it is emphasizing that through the work of the cross, and now as we'll see in his exaltation, that God the Father announces truly, this is my son. And verse 6 quotes 97, Psalm 97, verse 7. The son who became God incarnate, let all angels worship the son. For the angels are just, verse 7, uses Psalm 104, verse 4, ministering spirits and servants. And significantly, angels bow down to him. And then in verse 8 to 9, he uses Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 where it talks about the Old Testament Davidic king as if he was God exercising the sovereign rule with justice throughout the world. But again, the pastor shows us that such was prophetically pointing to the now exalted son of God in what he has achieved through his death and ascension. He is the true anointed king, the Messiah, Jesus. He has dealt with the root cause of injustice through his death. With the result in verse 9 that the father pours out joy on the son. Jesus is the happiest person in heaven. And then wonderfully further, this son who is Messiah, he will bring about the realization of the hope of the world. And so verse 10 to 12 quotes Psalm 102. 25 to 27. This king will roll up the earth and heaven like a scroll. If we get to it, Hebrews 12 focuses on the resulting new heaven and earth and begins to describe it. But it will be, he says here, the Messiah Jesus, who will be the one who will, will see God's plan of salvation through to the ultimate new age, the age to come. Renewal is coming. Hebrews says he changes not, verse 12. But he has inaugurated the new age, which will be consummated in a new heaven and a new earth. And then finally, in verse 13, to finish off theme one, he uses Psalm 110, verse 1. And we have a picture of the enthronement of God's true king at God's right hand. And here we see the picture. The son is seated at the father's right hand. He's now ruling as the true Lord of the world. But the world powers are on borrowed time. And he will continue to rule until everything that thwarts his purposes will finally be defeated. When an Old Testament king won a victory, the defeated king will be subject to him, symbolized by the feet of the victorious king placed on the head of the, the defeated king as a footstool. And that's the picture here. Jesus at the cross and through the resurrection has defeated the devil. And hence we'll see again in chapter two, verse eight, the devil is a defeated foe has been put under his feet and in the consummation that will be coming in the return of Jesus will finally be defeated in terms of a new heaven and a new earth coming. 
So a summary of theme one. The salt exalted son is introduced, having ascended to the father, he's gone into the heavens, into the inner sanctuary where God dwells, having dealt with sin and death as the incarnate son. And now the father welcomes him, having completed the work of salvation. It's my son. The father is so pleased that such joy rebounds in heaven. Here is our king, the true Lord of the world. But we are also one step away from the consummation of all things. He has ushered in the new age. He will bring it about the final consummation. There's no progression beyond Christ. This Hebrew church is stressed, beleaguered, and it's lost or it's losing its direction. So the pastor is saying, look, Hebrews, pick up your calls, Christians, find your destiny. And he lays it out in chapter one, in color, in very colorfully, and says, it's in Christ. We belong to Christ. We bear his image. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. I wonder, you know, if any of us are spiritually depressed, so much so that we're deflected to elsewhere, to, to elsewhere. Yeah, it's time to put Christ back at the center of things, because Hebrews chapter one shows us that's exactly where he is and indeed where he belongs. The good just there, we'll be going for a little while to maybe do some breakout groups, and I've given you a, a question just to uh, look at, at the bottom of theme one, maybe just to look at that together for uh, five minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll look at eschatology. So John, the question is, what does a church like, look like where Christ is central? Is that right? That's right. It's... Um, First of all, a bit of a reflection on what I've just said is, do, do I look back with sentiment, the good old days? Yeah. Is Christ as really my experience today as when it all started? Am I pressing on? And just to reflect out of that, what does it look like where Christ is central? Okay, thanks. So we're going to look now at theme two, which is the eschatological character of Hebrews. We're going to look at the doctrine of the last things and how that comes out in in Hebrews. Um, I don't know about you, I mean, it reflects a bit the question I'm going to ask at the end, but um, in your church or in your experience, what your experience is of focus on the return of Jesus Christ and if it figures in our experience and in our Christianity. Let's give you a, a illustration from uh, of a personal nature regarding my father. My father is 91 years old in a couple of months. And uh, five years ago, my, my mother died. He was a dementia carer for my mother. And what happened is when my mother died, he started to recount experiences he'd had of God that I never knew about, that the family had never known about. And what I've been doing over the last few months, I left it for a while, is, is writing these things down. And I just want you to tell you because it fits in here about his experience of coming to Christ. And in, in, in right at the beginning, when he was 17 years old in 1947, he stood at the open grave of his boss. He'd been given permission as an apprentice to go 
to the funeral. And when the funeral party had gone away in the graveyard, he went and stood near the open grave. He had no church background whatsoever, was not a religious uh, teen, teenager. And as he looked down in the open grave, a voice he heard and said to him, that is not the end. And he was shaken. He turned around, thought his friend had crept up on him and there was no one there. And that started his quest of looking for God. He was then doing, two years later, national service, and he was in Wales. And um, the army were doing some cross-country running, and he was put as a, as a young kind of marker out in, a, in one of the fields. He was being dropped off and he'd been picked up at the end of the day. And his, his job was just to point people in the right direction. And so he was alone. He had a long time to contemplate. And he cried out to God. And he said, God, if you're really real, if you're really real, Jesus, I want you to speak to me by the end of the day. Anyway, he went back to the barracks he was at the end of the day. And he was in a barracks with about 30 uh, soldiers most of them, and he was lying on his bed. He was about in the middle of the door of the, of the barracks of the dormitory. Then suddenly, as he looked over at the doorway, there was this large, tall army chaplain. It was a said he filled the doorway. You could see him with the sun, the silhouette uh, of him as he just looked down at um, the dormitory. And this army chaplain came right over to him, stood in front of this bunk and said, and it was the time where there was a coronation of the king happening, and he said to him, do you know that there's another coronation going to take place? And he said, no, I only know of the one regarding the king. And said, well, this one is a coronation of the king of kings. And my dad was floored because he knew that God had answered him. And I was quite struck that both these accounts, both these stories are to do with death and to do with Christ and final consummation. Interesting. In view of that, I just now want to look at this and to start to stress the importance of this theme in Hebrews. So let's look at point one. Point one, the future has come, but the future also rests in the future. Here we find one of the major thrusts of the book of Hebrews, emphasizing that the one who's lived our life, died our death, has now been exalted, exalted and glorified precisely as a human being. God came as a person, understanding where we are at now, and he's in our man in heaven, and he's really proud of us. And still further, he will rule in the age to come. This is the focus of chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Now, verse 5 picks up Psalm 8. In looking at the glory of the universe, man looks so small, the psalm says, in the midst of it, 
but humans are at the center of creation. And the intention was that they would rule over creation. Verses six to eight say that that was the ideal, but it's not being accomplished. Why? Because sin has entered the world. But here Jesus is sneaking into the picture in this psalm through the term son of man, which in Daniel means Messiah. The one perfect man has come. The first Adam messed up, but the second Adam, Christ, has come and through the cross and the resurrection has sorted the mess out. And the result is that the divine intention that humans should be stewards and should rule its back on track. And just pause here and put some application in because we may feel redundant. But we are called to rule in the age to come. And this reflection may start us thinking about taking you know, more responsibility now by preparing for the future now. Paul the Apostle scolds believers for taking each other to court. And he says, do you not know that we will rule angels in the world to come? But it's interesting because in verses 8, it says, yet. At present, we do not see everything subject to him. And here, the scholarship consensus is that humans are under consideration, not Christ. Some have read it, Christ, not all subject to Christ. But probably the consensus is all is not subject to our rule, human rule, which is the divine attention in the age to come. But in the semi-chaos of the present, verse 9, we need to fix our eyes to open them to see Jesus. That's the problem for this church. They've taken the concentration off Jesus. We need to see Jesus now in his glorified status. And what that means now and importantly, what that is anticipatory of. This is an emphatic statement through the fog, through the confusion of the present state of the world. We see Jesus crowned with glory, honor, and reigning supreme. That is the reality for us as Christians. The work is finished. The devil is defeated. Christ is the victor. The war is won, but the battle still rages. But the war is won. The devil is a defeated foe. And Jesus has gone ahead of us into the future as the true Lord of the world. The future has broken in through Christ's resurrection, but the future for us, if you like, to coin Tom Wright, a phrase from Tom Wright, lies in the future. We live in the now and not yet, awaiting full consummation at the second coming of Christ. Christ has brought the dawn of a new era at Easter, new creation. We are evidence that new creation has come, and the Spirit confirms it in our lives. We are to see the exalted Jesus and live in the light of that. Point two, the rest that is to come. This is terminology that's used in Hebrews, and other terminology is in Hebrews 12 for rest is unshakable kingdom, 
heavenly city or Zion. But this rest that is introduced first in chapter three, but then concentrated on in chapter four, is about saying what the Old Testament wilderness generation did not enter into because of unbelief, God's promised rest, it's still available. The opportunity to enter God's rest still stands. Therefore, it says, we must be careful to note what God's word is saying to us. Chapter four says there's a concrete destiny for the people of God. It uses Old Testament scripture, Genesis 2, verse 2, Psalm 95, to substantiate that a resting place truly exists. It's a real place that God has provided and is waiting for us to enter. Not a mythical place, but more real and relevant than the temporal concerns we have often caught up in. And again, consistent with Hebrews, what he does is uses scripture, Hebrew scriptures, evidence it is substantiated that God has spoken and he's spoken through a living word. And it's important that readers hear God's word. So in chapter four, verse three, it quotes Genesis 2, 2. It's the resting place that God has put in place when he created the world. Verse four, it says on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. There is a coming rest that God has provided. He has entered the rest. Verse 5, and he calls it my rest. He's there and he's waiting for us to join him. The promised land, the physical promised land, was never the divine intention. But wait, these readers are reading this. It's been read out in church, there's a letter, and there could be an objection. But did not 40 years after the wilderness generation, Joshua? take the Israelites into the promised land. Wasn't that, that not rest? But if it had happened, God would have not spoken through David in Psalm 95 verse 7, some 300 years later of another day and called it today. And there King David says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, stating that it was a new opportunity to enter the rest of God. The point is, know the rest of God, the unshakable kingdom, Zion, the eternal city. It remains available for the recipients of this letter and for us. And how would it come about? It will come about through the return of Christ. And this takes us to point three. And I put here, Chapter 9, verse 28, where it says, he will appear a second time. Christ will appear in this, uh, a second time. And this is a wonderful picture we have in Hebrews chapter 9, right at the end of the chapter. And if you're not careful, you can miss what the writer is trying to say. So just some background of this chapter. Jews in the first century would have been familiar with how the ritual of the Day of Atonement worked. The Old Testament high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies with sacrificial blood to make atonement for the sin of the people. And as he did so, there would be tension and anxiety 
would be in the air as people surrounded the tabernacle or the later temple waiting for the high priest. If he didn't come out, that would spell problems. Problems from him, he was probably dead. Problems from them, the sacrifice would have been rejected. But most times, he would reappear. And this is the picture in chapter 9, verse 28, of the high priest reappearing out of the temple, which was then a sign of forgiveness had been performed. And as he appeared, tension would turn to celebration as the people would just burst out in praise. And we have a wonderful um, piece of literature from 200 BC when Simon the Just, the high priest, comes out of the, high, out of, out of the temple on the Day of Atonement. And celebration bursts out as when he appears, it means that they, they, the atonement for sin has been accepted, that they've been forgiven. And the, the writer has this picture of the high priest coming out of the temple in mind. But in verse 28, he switches to Jesus. And he says this, just as the high priest in the Old Testament, as he went into the earthly tabernacle or earthly temple, Jesus has gone into the heavenly sanctuary. And he will appear. Not to sort out sin, that's been done. It's done at the cross, and he's secured it when he's gone into the heaven, heavenly sanctuary before the Father. But he's going to reappear to bring the consummation of this salvation through his second coming. Hebrews 10, verse 37, quotes Habakkuk 2, 3 to 4. He who is coming will come, and he will not delay. Are we living, watching, act actively waiting, eagerly expectant for the coming of the Lord? The last point on this, point four. The nature of the Sabbath rest, Zion, the eternal city. Still in chapter four, in verse nine, the nature of the rest is introduced and it's called a Sabbath rest. That remains for the people of God. Using this phrase stresses the aspect of festivity and joy. Sabbath was a place, a time of adoration and praise. And so the rest that God is going to give is, is a place of adoration and praise. A rest of festivity and joy awaits. Hebrews is so much like the book of Revelation in some respects. The last book of scripture, it gives us an indication of the atmosphere of that eternal rest. Revelation 21 verse 4, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And consistent with that, in Hebrews 12, verse 22, we have a glorious picture that this place, the heavenly Zion, is the place where God dwells at present. And it's currently experiencing partying angels, multitudes of them, thousands upon thousands around the throne of God. I'm sorry if I'm getting excited and shouting and going louder. 
who are adoring and praising the King of Kings. And the overall, the climax of chapter 12, 18 to 29, is a picture that both thrills and sends a chill down the spine of the readers as the final judgment and salvation are depicted. In 12 verse 27, the Lord God says, once more, I will shape everything appertaining to the present will be shaken in heaven and earth. And as Revelation 21 says, a new heaven, a new earth is to come as a result. And everything transient as a result, temporary, will go. But that which is based on Jesus himself and his resurrection, the unshakable kingdom, it will remain. This is the climax of our faith. To be forever with the Lord. And the conclusion is that the early church ex earnestly expected the return of the Lord. Revelation, Paul's letters. And here, because the church is losing sight of Christ, the Hebrew writer is underlining the importance of this aspect of the great hope to them. Don't miss it. Don't be like the wilderness generation who turned away through unbelief and disobedience, but look towards the rest that is to come. The last words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22 is this, yes, I'm coming soon. And the cry, the response of the bride is this, amen, come Lord Jesus. I'm convinced that this central aspect, this theme, which comes out so strongly in Hebrews, of our sure and certain hope of the resurrection and being with Christ needs to grab more of our attention, more of our motivation, more of our longing, and more of our desires. Now I put that out for you as a, uh, a question to look at in breakout groups. And the question is, Hebrews consistent with the biblical witnesses encourages us to eagerly expect the coming of the Lord. Does the great hope of Jesus enthroned and coming King receive enough of our attention? If not, why not? Or if so, if it is so, share with the group what helps with your focus. And I think after this uh, breakout, we're gonna have uh, a 15, 20 minutes or so coffee break. Okay, well, um, we've got two themes left and uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do theme three, which is the sacrificial system, though I'll, I'll just give you a few minutes overview. But as I said at the outset, I've got a full set of notes uh, for all these points. So they will be sent afterwards. So just very briefly on the sacrificial system of Jesus being the great high priest, he's the supreme true advocate representative. And it's quite difficult for us to get our heads around this because we're not Jewish Christians. Um, but to these people who come out and have got a Jewish heritage, the high priest is very important in terms of being the representative between God and the people. And 
And so what um, the writer does is because they're looking back at the temple system um, and probably giving undue significance to that, what he's saying to them is that actually, um, look, you know, he's the, Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest or in the original language, high and great are the same. So he's the high, high priest, or he's the great, great priest. He's, um, he's, he's bigger than all. And um, he understands suffering and he's not remote because he's been where we are. And he, he, he understands us in, in every uh, iota, every detail. And he's different because he's got the power to sort out sin. So I mentioned before about the Day of Atonement, which was the, uh, the central aspect of the high priest's job to, uh, on that one day of the Day of Atonement, to, to atone for sin by offering the blood of, um, of an animal in, in the Holy of Holies. And um, he, what the writer is saying is just that, well, you know, Jesus, he, 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 he just anticipates all that that was. All that that was in the old system failed. It, it, it wasn't possible to sort out sin. It had to be done year after year. And, and the, the, the high priest had to offer even a sacrifice for himself and, uh, because he himself was full of weakness. But this great high priest has come along in the, uh, and uh, through the cross and then into the heavenly tabernacle has, has forged a way. He's, he's pulled the veil down in the presence of, of God and he's made a way in which we can come into the presence of God. So that was not possible for the people. They relied on the high priest. But if you like, the, um, the, 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 the place of, 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 of judgment has become a place of mercy. And uh, we can have access to God 24-7. But the, um, and, um, and then he works out, you know, there's this strange guy called Melchizedek. I'm going very quickly here. But he's confounded a lot of people and puzzled. Everybody looks over him. And what on earth is this guy, Melchizedek? Who is he all about? Well, all that he does is that, as I introduced at the beginning, that uh, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He's the son of David. So, um, but the, the high priest came from the Levitical priesthood. So people are scratching their head and saying, how can Jesus be a high priest? He's not from the right tribe. So just Melchizedek, this strange character is just used. Uh, who comes, he's only found in Genesis 14 and uh, Psalm 110, that's it. He kind of just foreshadows, he prefigures Christ by coming to Abraham well before the Levitical priesthood and, and acting as a priest, and uh, Abraham blesses him. So the way he's described, he's not a celestial being at all. I mean, Hebrews, the writer's got enough of the celestial beings on his plate, you know, with angels being credited with being too much. He doesn't want another one. But Melchizedek, he's, he's just a historical figure who's like a type of, he, he prototypes Christ, and he, he legitimizes, if you like, um, Christ uh, being the high priest. But the one thing, and it, as you'll see with the notes in point four about this high priest that is absolutely unique, is that, you know, the high priest in the old covenant, he was the one who um, offered the sacrifice for, for sin for the people and for himself. But in scripture, there's, there's no references at all, apart from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and maybe the picture of Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice, which then didn't really ha it didn't happen. 
um, there's no idea in scripture about uh, a Messiah uh, having to offer himself as a sacrifice. And this is the wonder of it all, that this high priest has put himself on the sacrificial table. And he's, 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 he's won the victory for us by what he has done. Hallelujah. What a savior we are, we have. And, uh, but we're not going to, to, to focus on that. So I've, I've given the full notes about it, but that's just a, a, a kind of quick rundown about um, the high priest, which takes up quite a few chapters um, in, in Hebrews. But what I only want to finish with is essential faith. And, um, and just look at that really to, 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 to finish off Hebrews, because it's a major theme in Hebrews is, uh, is, 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 is faith. And um, I put up the question at the bottom about, you know, who speaks to you as a hero of faith from Hebrews? And um, I've got a Hebrew, of, uh, uh, not from Hebrews, a uh, uh, hero of faith, but someone in my past, uh, I remember, you know, when I was growing up, was, you know, over 40 years ago, who really spoke to me as a, as a hero of faith. He was a, a gentleman in our church when I grew up. I, I grew up in the, in the Plymouth Brethren. And... Um, this um, this guy in our church, he, he happened to be the the um, chair of governors in our grammar school, and um, also he was one of the founding trustees uh, for Operation Mobilization, um, and what with George Burwell in the in the original days of those mission ships that that, that that go out. But there's one one act that he did that that speaks to me um, as a, him as a hero of faith and. As the, the, the chair of governors of the grammar school, he, he was asked to come and, and to, um, to give a speech on, on Founders Day. Um, he did the address, if you like. And um, when he came, I remember his opening address that, you know, I, I have seven different um, speeches to give to you, addresses to give you, and I've, I've written them all up, and I'm giving this one. And then he, he spoke gloriously about the Lord Jesus Christ to a secular audience. And I was just, I could not believe what, what I was hearing. It was not PC to do that 40 years ago. It certainly would not be PC to do that. But he stood up there and he, he, he just said that, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ has been everything to, to, to me and um, he's available to you. And, and did it in such a sensitive way. And I remember that next uh, Monday morning, got to school, and our form master was a biology teacher who was an avid atheist, and he was absolutely furious of what this guy had done. But I remember coming away from that evening, coming away from Founders Day, and um, and I was just full of the Lord, and I, and I thought, you know, it made me think that I've got to bring the Lord into every aspect of. Um, uh, of my life and in one sense it was foolish what he did to many but he loved the lord and i found out he was um, living in the cotswolds at the end of his life in his 90s you know and uh, at that time he was he was making tracks about his life and he was going around the village and he was telling everyone um about the lord so uh, just a hero of faith who has spoken to me and impacted my life from the past but when it's now going to look um just a, a, a faith, uh, at what faith is in Hebrews, because it's in such an important uh, area. It's expressed in chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, but we're going to focus more 
on chapter 11, the, uh, the chapter of faith, and then a little bit on, on chapter 13. But uh, particularly chapter 6, 13 to 20, expresses as strongly as possible the unchanging faithfulness of God, that God's promises stand and will come to pass, that we have a, a concrete cast iron certainty that God does keep his promises, for we have a sure and certain hope anchored in the work of Christ. And uh, in this particular chapter, he uses three pictures to underline God is faithful to his promises. Uh, an anchor that secures a ship, a forerunner with the images of the racetrack, just go back to when I started, and the most holy place picturing the day of atonement. First, we have a hope as an anchor for the soul. An anchor is not a biblical term, but it comes from first century Greek. <clears throat> the anchor is used as a symbol for certainty and hope. And the soul is the part of the essential person that stays after death. The hope is therefore of eternal and not temporal security. But this hope also, as an anchor, is moving forward in chapter 6, and it goes right into the presence of God himself. And then he picks up, you know, with the smell of, uh, of the racetrack, a forerunner, Jesus himself, who has entered the inner sanctuary on our behalf, opening access to God, and prospectively our destiny, which is to be forever with the Lord, which is God's ultimate promise. Christian hope, Hebrews says, is trusting and going on trusting through thick and thin in a God who has made unbreakable promises. But then looking at, chapter, at point two, let's just look for a little while about the definition of faith in, in chapter 11, which is the, the, the famous chapter that is uh, the, 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 the focus of many sermons. Verse one, there's a, a careful definition of faith. The faith is the reality of things hoped for. And secondly, it's the evidence of things not seen. In other words, that the nature of faith, it's got both futuristic and it's got present elements. It's the reality of things hoped for. In chapter 11, faith is orientated like this anchor imagery towards the future. It is the hope for realization of God's promised reward that will come at the end of the ages. And the reward is Christ himself, his presence. But then faith has a present focus, for it is also in us the present evidence of the unseen. In other words, the reality of God's existence is wisdom, his farsightedness, his faithfulness and power in our lives. It is proof of God's work in the here and now. Stripped down, faith is a way of life, not a theoretical belief. It's us living with an utter dependence on the living God for everything. It's a way of living day by day, 24-7, as if the things hoped for are real now. And in verse 2, it says, by this way of living, Old Testament folk in chapter 11, they're commended as good examples. Whereas in earlier chapters, though we've not looked at them, the wilderness generation is portrayed as cynical and an unbelieving rabble. But the folk mentioned in chapter 11, they receive divine approval and are worthy of emulation. These folk 
they flesh out and they enrich the definition of what it means to live by faith. But firstly, he sets the foundations. God's word is ultimate reality. And in a culture in an age where we live at the moment, where God's word is being marginalized, we need to listen. We need to listen to what Hebrews writer is saying. Firstly, verse three, he says, the worlds, the ages were ordered by the word of God. God created the physical world, arranged its parts in a harmonious whole by merely speaking his word. It is by the word of God that the word came into being and will be brought ultimately to their climax. The significance is that creation has not come about into being from the things that have the quality of visibility. This affirmation is the foundation of faith in this chapter. What it's saying is that it is not the visible world of daily experience, but rather God's word that is the ultimate reality because it is the means of creation. So to live by faith is then from beginning to end, living in accordance with the word of God rather than the values of the visible world. We're not living as believers as though this visible world is ultimate reality. The final source of happiness, approval, gain, or loss, but rather what God has said, what Christ has done validates and approves me. Just think again about the Hebrew situation and how that would speak to them. The word of God is truth. And then point three, we, we have these tremendous examples of faith. It's, it's a real roll call for the Old Testament heroes. It praises the heroes of the past in order to encourage a particular course of action. But also, it underlines community solidarity. And that's important because community solidarity is something that is vulnerable for the Hebrew believers. They're beginning to give up meeting together. And so he's showing here that, look, community solidarity is, was here sustained, and it was sustained by God's word. You do likewise. You stay together. You encourage each other. And what, what this chapter is, it's, it's split into different heroes and different periods. So this is one to seven, the primeval period, let's call it, of Abel, Enoch, Noah. And then we've got from verse 8 to 22, Abraham to the patriarchs, which picks up Genesis 12 to 50. If you want to group 23 to 31, it's looking at faith under stress, which is Moses to Joshua and Rahab. And then it kind of that is people have said it reaches like to the top of a hill at Rahab, which we'll look at. And then it, it descends the hill quickly and it and it focuses it doesn't focus on people and what they did it mentions them but it, the focus is on verse 32 to 40 is the deeds of faith and what he's stressing here through this as he comes downhill fast is that look the deeds of faith by these people they lead to a better resurrection rather than focus on individuals but just let's look at a few uh, folk from verses uh, one to um, uh, seven, sorry, to um, 22. We're not going to look at everyone. I've just picked out a few. 
But overall, there are nine individuals con con commended for faith. Eight of them are fathers of patriarchs that are counted righteous. But significantly, one is a Gentile prostitute, Rahab, and is the most important and interesting person on the list. Four reasons for that is her confession of faith, which if you want to pick up, it says in Joshua 2, 9 to 10. Secondly, it's a wonderful picture of God's grace. Thirdly, if Rahab the prostitute can do the right thing, then surely a Hebrew church, you can. And fourthly, actually, she is a popular figure in earlier Christianity. The entire list is meant to culminate on Rahab. And, and it's it probably only recently that Western scholars have, have uncovered this, that she's linked to the chief exhortation of Hebrews found in chapter 13, 13 to 14. And that is this, let us go outside the camp bearing his disgrace, for we do not have a lasting city, but seek that which is to come. So we'll look at her in the last point, but Rahab is of singular importance. But in this chapter, the writer selects and he shapes his examples to address the Hebrew situation. So just a few examples I'll, I'll pick up. And um, you, you can, um, I, I think I've put the full amount in, in, in the handout that, 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 that I'm sending out to you. Abel. He uses Abel because faith allowed him to see what Cain, his brother, could not. What was an acceptable sacrifice to God? And he was commended for this conviction. And he speaks to the readers in those circumstances, for he had a faith that persevered to the point of death. He was killed by his brother. And so he, if you're like able in, in terms of faith, he prefigures the faith of Jesus himself, the, the true exemplar of faith that's mentioned in chapter 12, verse 2. Later in, in chapter 13, actually, you could say, is also linked to the acceptable sacrifice that this church is to offer. Doing good, sharing possessions, and offering a sacrifice of praise. Just aside, I haven't got time to go into it, but he says that sacrificial um, side of things has ended, that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, but he does in chapter 13 says there's one outstanding sacrifice, if you like, to pick up, but it's one of praise and thanksgiving. And then Enoch will miss out. But Noah is an interesting one. Noah was warned of pending destruction. And so he constructed an ark. What's that about? You know, no one had experienced that. They laughed at him, building a boat on dry ground. But he built the ark for the salvation of himself and his household. And he did that in responding to events worn by God, but yet unseen. God told him, but there was no evidence that that was going to happen, that there was going to be a flood. Similarly, the leaders are warned of a cataclysmic judgment in chapter 12, 26 to 27, that's going to come. They need to respond accordingly. Here's a great one, Abraham. He was commended for leaving his home not knowing where he was going. Didn't have a satellite nav navigation system. They didn't have an end point in sight in that respect on earth, chapter 11, verse eight. It says he lived within Canaan as a foreigner. 
trusting God's promise. He was confident because he was looking for a city built by God with sure foundations. Verse 10. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they lived as strangers, exiles, without receiving what was promised. Verse 13. They lived as foreigners on earth because they sought a homeland, which was not Canaan, but was a heavenly country, a city prepared by God for those who live by faith. Moses. Moses is another interesting character. He chose mistreatment with the people of God. He left Egypt unafraid of the king's anger. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of Egypt. Now, he's not saying that he, he saw Christ. Here, the focus is on the readers. They don't try to identify Moses with the situation. He's saying, look, you had readers an exemplary past. When you came to Christ, you were all out for Christ. But now, at this point in time, years later, they must do again what Moses did. They must identify with Moses in how he reacted with identifying with the people of God. Like Moses, they must give up status. They must you choose mistreatment, and it means it, even death. They must forsake fleeting treasures of sin in order to seek the heavenly city. These are just a few examples. But all of them are concrete examples of people who inherit God's promises through faithful actions. And they are ex they're examples to be imitated, not because of doctrine, but because of their deeds. Which leads us to point four, that faith leads to action. And I want you to just listen to this in, 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 in conjunction with chapter 13, verse 13. Let us follow Jesus outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. So Rahab, just, just focus on her. She seems to appears to be at the pinnacle of the list in chapter 11, verse 31. Why? Because she's the best example for the situation. She speaks, a Gentile prostitute, to the situation the most. Because she exemplifies action that preserves life. That to follow her example and to avoid the destruction to be met out on the disobedient in the city where, where they live, i.e. God's judgment. Quickly... Rahab is warned about events, just like Noah. The spies come into a city, into Jericho, and they tell her what's going to happen. But in one sense, it's a bit like Noah because it's, it's yet unseen. So they say the destruction of the city is coming. But that's the very thing in terms of how she responds positively that unites her with God's people. And she is saved by separating herself from an unbelieving wor world. In Joshua 2, verses 9 to 10, we read that she is taken outside the city to a place outside the camp of Israel. 
That's the last thing that is said about it. This is the very term used in the final and chief exaltation of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 11 to 12. Rahab did what the readers are advised to do. She went outside the camp knowing her city would of Jericho would not endure. And this action saved her. In Hebrews 13, 11 to 12, we're reminded that Jesus suffered outside the gates. 13 verse 13. The readers are advised to follow Jesus outside the camp. Why? It says in 13 verse 14, we have no enduring city here, but we're seeking a city yet to come. Now, what did that mean? For the readers well it, it meant for them in their situation going outside symbolically means leaving to them jerusalem leaving the temple and all it represented in terms of the focus that they are giving to it it's gone <laughs> the sacrificial system is gone it's of no use to you christ has come his sacrifice has replaced everything. That's the bulk of, 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 uh, of what he will say about Jesus as high priest. What they need to do now is to look to the city that endures, to look to that which is real, to the future, to the concrete destiny of an eternal city. The original church reading this, as it would be read out in church, the letter received, they find Rahab standing outside the camp, choosing salvation, and so condemning the Gentile city and all that it stood for, Christ suffered outside of the gates of Jerusalem. The Hebrews, they're also suffering, but they're urged to identify with your supreme exemplar in chapter 12, verse 1. They're to follow Rahab's example through their actions. The all religious ways of Jerusalem, the temple, and the might of, the, of Rome, it may seem mighty, but the gospel is that which subverts the Roman Empire. They all belong to the past. And all will finally be shaken in the judgment to come. But you, church, you, church, by faith, you endure hardship, stand aside, identify with Christ, and see now your Lord by faith as we look at the enduring city, at the unshakable kingdom to come. A quote with a finish on Hebrews with a quote from both a theologian, I think it's De Silva, and also a word of exaltation and warning from Hebrews 4. The theologian says this, Hebrews is not focused on statements of belief or assent to doctrine. It's not interested in that. It may look like a complicated book. It's not. Hebrews is about living in the reality that all things will be subject to Jesus in an unshakable kingdom and a city built by God. It is about responding with obedient action. And then just to finish with a... a um, some verses from uh, Hebrews chapter four, um, which really underline that, you know, the, the, the writer uses throughout Hebrews, Hebrew scriptures in order to underline the importance of 
of what God's saying. Listen to God's voice. Listen to God incarnate, the word of God who has come. God's word is powerful and effective, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to the indivisible parts of our being. Lord, may we hear your word from the book of Hebrews and respond with faithful obedience. I've just got a, a question just to finish this off in a breakout group, um, which Andy, if you want to put up on the chat, it's just which Old Testament character speaks to you the most of faith and why? Or maybe like me, it's a contemporary person that you want to identify with. That's good. But then I just say, describe one way that you can live by faith this coming week and trust God will strengthen you to live this way. Describe one way you can live by faith this coming week and trust God will give you strength to live this way. I'm just going to give a very few minutes to uh, the general epistles. I've got a three and a half page handout uh, that I'm going to send to you on uh, the uh, general epistles. So this very, very quickly, and then um, we're going to have a coffee break and then we'll go for prayer. Uh, so James, Jude, 1, 2, Peter, and 2, and 3, uh, 1, 2, and 3, John. Letters are sent to the church in general rather than specific churches. So um, that's important to know. Book of James. Book of James, actually, just to say, it has uh, quite an emphasis upon faith. So just to say that, picking up where we were on Hebrews. So that's uh, quite interesting. You might want to look at that when you look at the book of James. But the consensus is that the letter was written by the half-brother of Jesus, uh, James, who um, doubted Jesus in his earthly ministry. But in Acts, he completely changed, and he records him as a believer who had a very prominent position in, um, in the Jerusalem church. Date of the letter, around AD 62, um, must have been before then, or, uh, because James was martyred for his faith. Uh, letter itself, um, it's filled with Old Testament imagery, uh, image, uh, wisdom sayings using proverbs, etc., etc., and, and teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the there are very kind of short sayings, uh, short snippets, if you like, and, and for that reason, Martin Luther was very skeptical about James and its addition to. Um, the canon. There isn't a thematic kind of structure throughout, but but many themes, if you like. It's um, the letter also implies that the readers are poor. Um, they're facing as the re Hebrew readers were, and in common with many Christians in that time, facing challenging situations. Being Christians, uh, experiencing oppression. Some of them are being put before the courts uh, by the rich. Uh, they're being laughed at for the Christian faith, but they're exhorted to be patient. And again, as in Hebrews, they're reminded of the great hope in the second coming of uh, Christ. Uh, and, and interesting, as you know, James opens, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet, uh, <laughs> you meet trials. Well, they're, they're counseled to meet their trials with endurance, uh, which they, he says will result in Christian maturity and the reward of a crown of life. You, you'll find with some of these themes that it's not as heavy going as Hebrews. It's a, it's a 
a, a, a lighter read uh, from that respect as he, he, he uses illustrations uh, to back up his points. There's a call to repent from wilderness as, a, as well as a call to humility. So that's James. Jude, Jude is a very, very short letter. And uh, it's again, it's attributed to um, another uh, of Jesus's half, uh, four half brothers. And again, just like James, he didn't believe in the Lord during his ministry. Uh, but uh, Jude, or they call him Judah, he became a traveling teacher or, or missionary. And um, he's writing it to Jewish Christians um, like uh, James is. Uh, and so they have a knowledge of, of Jewish heritage. And it's evidenced that by the fact he uses Jewish literature in the text, things that they will be familiar with. Uh, and the thrust of the letter is that Christians need to withstand false and corrupt teachers that are infiltrating the church. And, and in so doing, they need to contend for the faith. And he, he confronts head on these, uh, these corrupt teachers and their, their conduct, because um, they're trying to, they so-called have the so-called teachers of Christ, but their focus is on, on the love of money and sexual impurity. And there's a, a warning to stay away from them. And, and they use, he uses the example of the wilderness generation, uh, just as he, uh, the writer of the Hebrews does, that God judges. And he uses a, 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 numerous examples where God's judgment has fallen in the Old Testament and in Jewish uh, literature uh, upon those that have not followed the Lord. And, um, and uh, yeah, so conversely, he says, look, you're a community of believers. You're the new temple built. Um, uh, and that uh, resurrection should be a focus of you and living the life of re resurrection. Build your life on prayer. And be alert, as, as, as the Hebrew says, the return of the Lord. James, uh, sorry, that's Jude. First Peter, um, well, as Peter, as we know, is one of the 12 disciples. He's credited with ownership of the letter of First Peter, though it's probably composed by one of his co-workers, Silvanus. So he's behind it, if you like. The letter was sent to multiple church communities of Gentile origin in this case. And uh, again, consistent with what we've heard before, it was written to a community suffering through persecution. Key themes of the epistle, their identity in Christ, they're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, they're exiled from the world. And he uses Abraham, uh, as we, we heard um, in, in Hebrews, that they, like Abraham, are looking for this eternal home. And they can expect this strange gift of suffering. Secondly, that persecution, it will help to bring clarity to their mission. Um, and, and he goes into aspects of where this persecution is coming out. So Christians who always find themselves as slaves. Uh, those who find themselves in, in, in difficult marriages. And, and what's your conduct? What's your response to this? And he's trying to say, look, you need the wisdom of God. Don't show um, rebellion, but try and show, demonstrate Christian freedom in their conduct. Show the grace of God. It's going to focus on future vindication. Jesus is now exalted as the true Lord of the world. Again, similar to Hebrews, and he's the Lord over the dark spiritual 
forces. He uses the symbol of baptism to show the exodus that they have, have taken uh, in Christ. Overall, they're to have this tremendous hope in the midst of suffering through persecution and have the opportunity to, to demonstrate Christian character. True Peter, dressed to the same network as the churches of one Peter. And here, Peter is at the end of his life. He's aware that he's going to die soon. So if you like, two Peter is a farewell speech to the, to, to the churches. It's interesting to, to then read it in that way. Um, and he's just he's continuing the believers to, to, to grow in Christ. And he's, he's addressing the, which must have been difficult for him at the end of his life. Corrupt, again, corrupt church leaders who have a corrupt lifestyle and and theology and this farewell leader quite a bit of it, is countering the false teachers claims and restoring order in the church the work of god is is, is never done for those with responsibility and um you know he says he, he, he says how fundamental it is to know that we are indeed following god's nature showing his love sharing his life and um he addresses directly accusations that these false teachers come up with, that Jesus' resurrection um, has been made up and, he, and uh, that he's coming back one day. And, and he uses illustration of the transfiguration of Jesus, which he himself saw uh, along with James and, and John, and, and, and shows that Jesus is indeed, he's exalted, king of the world, and he will return, as the Hebrew scriptures prophetically foretold um, and he dismisses these false teachers and he, he uses again uh, warnings consistently what we've heard from the from the hebrew scriptures from jewish writings um, about people who have come come to no good through turning their back upon uh, god and he says look in, in terms of them, them saying there's no final record reckoning this is short-sighted an objection and um, god is going to bring that about in the day of the Lord. And we may think it's taking too long, but understand of our time is so limited compared to God. However, we should see the presence as a sign of God's patience. He's not yet come. And an opportunity to experience his grace. It's an intense letter redressing false teaching with a firm Christian conviction. Conviction. One, two, three, John. The author of these epistles is probably the evangelist John. The author of the said gospel is in old age, writing to a network of churches around the Ephesus area, communities most likely to be uh, Jewish origin. And uh, he mentions a crisis that they'd recently gone through, that some people had broken themselves off from the churches, no, law no longer recognizing Jesus as Messiah, stirring up trouble for those who remained faithful and in the church. And specifically in 2 Johnny, recalls though, who denied Jesus, that they are actually their deceivers. Three John written to a specific member of the church, Gaius, to recognize missionaries coming to the church because a leader is rejecting specific representatives that have been sent from John. First John, the larger uh, of, of, of the letters, is, is more like a poetic sermon sent to those who've remained faithful to Christ in this church to encourage them. Most of the teachings in, 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 in 1 John come directly from Jesus out of the gospel to encourage them to remain faithful. He amplifies ideas around life, truth, love. The writing is it, quite profound, 
like Hebrews, this one. The important images are that God is light and love, echoing John's gospel, and uh, also Genesis, and focus on the importance of, of uh, fellowship and walking in the light by keeping Jesus' commands. We're to love one another as Jesus has loved us and so live in the light. We have victory over sin and death. Don't love the world, John says. And he gives a staunch warning against those who have left the church. Um, as I've said, but you be different from them. You love one another. Avoid hatred. And love is defined as giving up one's life as a sacrifice. Follow Jesus' supreme example. Because the deceivers, they're false prophets. And um, they generate anger and oppression in terms of the fruit of their work. It's important to test the spirits. God's true children center on Jesus. You express self-giving love that focuses upon the Lord. When God lo love, John says, gets hold of you, we can know him and are known in him and are known by him. So that's a quick overview. And at that, I say, I will send to you um, after the uh, session this morning.